Part eight of Tom Jones being Book three, chapters one to three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book three, chapters one to three. Book three containing the most memorable transactions which passed in the family of Mr. Allworthy, from the time when Tommy Jones arrived at the age of fourteen, till he attained the age of nineteen. In this book the reader may pick up some hints concerning the education of children. Chapter 1. Containing Little or Nothing. The reader will be pleased to remember that at the beginning of the second book of this history, we gave him a hint of our intention to pass over several large periods of time in which nothing happened worthy of being recorded in a chronicle of this kind. In so doing, we do not only consult our own dignity and ease, but the good and advantage of the reader, for besides that by these means we prevent him from throwing away his time, in reading without either pleasure or emolument, we give him at all such seasons an opportunity of employing that wonderful sagacity of which he is master, by filling up these vacant spaces of time with his own conjectures, for which purpose we have taken care to qualify him in the preceding pages. For instance, what reader but knows that Mr. Allworthy felt at first for the loss of his friend, those emotions of grief which on such occasions enter into all men whose hearts are not composed of flint, or their heads of as solid materials? Again, what reader doth not know that philosophy and religion in time moderated, and at last extinguished this grief? The former of these teaching the folly and vanity of it, and the latter correcting it as unlawful, and at the same time assuaging it by raising future hopes and assurances, which enable a strong and religious mind to take leave of a friend on his deathbed with little less indifference than if he was preparing for a long journey and indeed with little less hope of seeing him again. Nor can the judicious reader be at a greater loss on account of Mrs. Bridget Bliffill, who, he may be assured, conducted herself through the whole season in which grief is to make its appearance on the outside of the body, with the strictest regard to all the rules of custom and decency, suiting the alterations of her countenance to the several alterations of her habit. For as this changed from weeds to black, from black to grey, from grey to white, so did her countenance change from dismal to sorrowful, from sorrowful to sad, and from sad to serious, till the day came in which she was allowed to return to her former serenity. We have mentioned these two as examples only of the task which may be imposed on readers of the lowest class much higher and harder exercises of judgment and penetration may reasonably be expected from the upper graduates in criticism many notable discoveries will i doubt not be made by such of the transactions which happened in the family of our worthy man during all the years which we have thought proper to pass over for though nothing worthy of a place in this history occurred within that period 
yet did several incidents happen of equal importance with those reported by the daily and weekly historians of the age, in reading which great numbers of persons consume a considerable part of their time, very little, I am afraid, to their emolument. Now in the conjectures here proposed, some of the most excellent faculties of the mind may be employed to much advantage, since it is a more useful capacity to be able to foretell the actions of men in any circumstances from their characters than to judge of their characters from their actions. The former, I own, requires the greater penetration, but may be accomplished by true sagacity with no less certainty than the latter. As we are sensible that much the greater part of our readers are very eminently possessed of this quality, we have left them a space of twelve years to exert it in, and shall now bring forth our hero at about fourteen years of age, not questioning that many have been long impatient to be introduced to his acquaintance. End of chapter 1 Chapter 2 The hero of this great history appears with very bad omens, a little tale of so low a kind that some may think it not worth their notice, a word or two concerning a squire, and more relating to a gamekeeper and a schoolmaster. As we determined, when we first sat down to write this history, to flatter no man, but to guide our pen throughout by the directions of truth, we are obliged to bring our hero on the stage in a much more disadvantageous manner than we could wish, and to declare honestly, even at his first appearance, that it was the universal opinion of all Mr. Allworthy's family that he was certainly born to be hanged. Indeed, I am sorry to say, there was too much reason for this conjecture. The lad, having from his earliest years discovered a propensity to many vices, and especially to one, which hath as direct a tendency as any other to that fate which we have just now observed to have been prophetically denounced against him. He had been already convicted of three robberies, viz. of robbing an orchard, of stealing a duck out of a farmer's yard, and of picking Master Bliffield's pocket of a ball. The vices of this young man were, moreover, heightened by the disadvantageous light in which they appeared when opposed to the virtues of Master Bliffill, his companion, a youth of so different a cast from little Jones, that not only the family, but all the neighbourhood resounded his praises. He was indeed a lad of a remarkable disposition, sober, discreet, and pious beyond his age, qualities which gained him the love of every one who knew him, whilst Tom Jones was universally disliked, and many expressed their wonder that Mr. Allworthy would suffer such a lad to be educated with his nephew, lest the morals of the latter should be corrupted by his example. An incident which happened about this time will set the character of these two lads more fairly before the discerning reader than is in the power of the longest dissertation. Tom Jones, who, bad as he is, must serve for the hero of this history, had only one friend among the servants of the family, for, as to Mrs. Wilkins, she had long since given him up, and was perfectly reconciled to her mistress. This friend was the gamekeeper, a fellow of a loose kind of disposition, and who was thought not to entertain much stricter notions concerning the difference of meum and tuum than the young gentleman himself. 
and hence this friendship gave occasion to many sarcastical remarks among the domestics, most of which were either proverbs before, or at least are become so now, and indeed the wit of them all may be comprised in that short Latin proverb, Noscitur a socio, which I think is thus expressed in English, you may know him by the company he keeps. To say the truth, some of that atrocious wickedness in Jones, of which we have just mentioned three examples, might perhaps be derived from the encouragement he had received from this fellow, who in two or three instances had been what the laws call an accessory after the fact, for the whole duck and a great part of the apples were converted to the use of the gamekeeper and his family, though, as Jones alone was discovered, the poor lad bore not only the whole smart, but the whole blame, both of which fell again to his lot on the following occasion. Contiguous to Mr. Allworthy's estate was the manner of one of those gentlemen who are called preservers of the game. This species of men, from the great severity with which they revenged the death of a hare or a partridge, might be thought to cultivate the same superstition with the Banyans in India, many of whom, we are told, dedicate their whole lives to the preservation and protection of certain animals. Was it not that our English Banyans, while they preserve them from other enemies, will most unmercifully slaughter whole horse-loads themselves, so that they stand clearly acquitted of any such heathenish superstition. I have indeed a much better opinion of this kind of men than is entertained by some, as I take them to answer the order of nature, and the good purposes for which they were ordained, in a more ample manner than many others. Now, as Horace tells us that there are a set of human beings, fruges consumere nati, born to consume the fruits of the earth, so I make no manner of doubt, but that there are others, feras consumere nati, born to consume the beasts of the field, or, as it is commonly called, the game, and none, I believe, will deny but that those squires fulfil this end of their creation. Little Jones went one day a-shooting with the gamekeeper, when, happening to spring a covey of partridges near the border of that manor over which fortune, to fulfil the wise purposes of nature, had planted one of the game-consumers, the birds flew into it, and were marked, as it is called, by the two sportsmen in some furze-bushes, about two or three hundred paces beyond Mr. Allworthy's dominions. Mr. Allworthy had given the fellow strict orders, on pain of forfeiting his place, never to trespass on any of his neighbours, no more on those who were less rigid in this matter, than on the lord of this manor. With regard to others, indeed, these orders had not been always very scrupulously kept, but as the disposition of the gentleman with whom the partridges had taken sanctuary was well known, the gamekeeper had never yet attempted to invade his territories nor had he done it now, had not the younger sportsman, who was excessively eager to pursue the flying game, over-persuaded him, but Jones being very importunate, the other, who was himself keen enough after the sport, yielded to his persuasions, entered the manor, and shot one of the partridges. The gentleman himself was at that time on horseback at a little distance from them, and hearing the gun go off, he immediately made towards the place, and discovered poor Tom, for the gamekeeper had leapt into the thickest part of the furze-brake, where he had happily concealed himself. 
The gentleman, having searched the lad and found the partridge upon him, denounced great vengeance, swearing he would acquaint Mr. Allworthy. He was as good as his word, for he rode immediately to his house, and complained of the trespass on his manor in as high terms and as bitter language, as if his house had been broken open and the most valuable furniture stolen out of it. He added that some other person was in his company, though he could not discover him, for that two guns had been discharged almost in the same instant. And, says he, we have found only this partridge, but the Lord knows what mischief they have done. At his return home, Tom was presently convened before Mr. Allworthy. He owned the fact, and alleged no other excuse but what was really true, viz. that the covey was originally sprung in Mr. Allworthy's own manner. Tom was then interrogated who was with him, which Mr. Allworthy declared he was resolved to know, acquainting the culprit with the circumstances of the two guns which had been deposed by the squire and both his servants. But Tom stoutly persisted in asserting that he was alone, yet, to say the truth, he hesitated a little at first, which would have confirmed Mr. Allworthy's belief, had what the squire and his servants said wanted any further confirmation. The gamekeeper, being a suspected person, was now sent for, and the question put to him. But he, relying on the promise which Tom had made him to take all upon himself, very resolutely denied being in company with the young gentleman, or indeed having seen him the whole afternoon. Mr. Allworthy then turned towards Tom, with more than usual anger in his countenance, and advised him to confess who was with him, repeating that he was resolved to know, the lad, however, still maintained his resolution, and was dismissed with much wrath by Mr. Allworthy, who told him he should have to the next morning to consider of it, when he should be questioned by another person, and in another manner. Poor Joan spent a very melancholy night, and the more so as he was without his usual companion, for Master Bliffill was gone abroad on a visit with his mother. Fear of the punishment he was to suffer was on this occasion his least evil, his chief anxiety being lest his constancy should fail him and he should be brought to betray the gamekeeper whose ruin he knew must now be the consequence nor did the gamekeeper pass his time much better he had the same apprehensions with the youth for whose honour he had likewise a much tenderer regard than for his skin in the morning, when Tom attended the Reverend Mr. Thwackham, the person to whom Mr. Allworthy had committed the instruction of the two boys, he had the same questions put to him by that gentleman which he had been asked the evening before, to which he returned the same answers. The consequence of this was so severe a whipping that it possibly fell little short of the torture with which confessions are in some countries extorted from criminals. Tom bore his punishment with great resolution, and though his master asked him between every stroke whether he would not confess, he was contented to be flayed rather than betray his friend or break the promise he had made. The gamekeeper was now relieved from his anxiety, and Mr. Allworthy himself began to be concerned at Tom's sufferings, for besides that Mr. Thwackham, being highly enraged that he was not able to make the boy say what he himself pleased, had carried his severity much beyond the good man's intentions, this latter began now to suspect that the squire had been mistaken, 
which his extreme eagerness and anger seemed to make probable, and as for what the servants had said in confirmation of their master's account, he laid no greater stress upon that. Now, as cruelty and injustice were two ideas of which Mr. Allworthy could by no means support the consciousness a single moment, he sent for Tom, and, after many kind and friendly exhortations, said, I am convinced, my dear child, that my suspicions have wronged you. I am sorry that you have been so severely punished on this account, and at last gave him a little horse to make amends, again repeating his sorrow for what had passed. Tom's guilt now flew in his face more than any severity could make it. He could more easily bear the lashes of Thwackham than the generosity of Allworthy. The tears burst from his eyes, and he fell upon his knees, crying, "'Oh, sir, you are too good to me. Indeed you are. Indeed I don't deserve it.' And at that very instant, from the fullness of his heart, had almost betrayed the secret, but the good genius of the gamekeeper suggested to him what might be the consequence to the poor fellow, and this consideration sealed his lips. Thwackham did all he could to dissuade Allworthy from showing any compassion or kindness to the boy, saying he had persisted in an untruth, and gave some hints that a second whipping might probably bring the matter to light. But Mr. Allworthy absolutely refused to consent to the experiment. He said the boy had suffered enough already for concealing the truth, even if he was guilty, seeing that he could have no motive but a mistaken point of honour for so doing. Honour, cried Thwackham with some warmth, mere stubbornness and obstinacy. Can honour teach any one to tell a lie, or can any honour exist independent of religion? This discourse happened at table when dinner was just ended, and there were present Mr. Allworthy, Mr. Thwackham, and a third gentleman, who now entered into the debate, and whom, before we proceed any farther, we shall briefly introduce to our reader's acquaintance. End of chapter 2 Chapter 3 The Character of Mr. Square the Philosopher And of Mr. Thwackham the Divine With a Dispute Concerning The name of this gentleman, who had then resided some time at Mr. Allworthy's house, was Mr. Square. His natural parts were not of the first rate, but he had greatly improved them by a learned education. He was deeply read in the ancients, and a professed master of all the works of Plato and Aristotle, upon which great models he had principally formed himself, sometimes according with the opinion of the one, and sometimes with that of the other. In morals he was a professed Platonist, and in religion he inclined to be an Aristotelian. But though he had, as we have said, formed his morals on the Platonic model, Yet he perfectly agreed with the opinion of Aristotle in considering that great man rather in the quality of a philosopher or a speculatist than as a legislator. This sentiment he carried a great way, indeed so far as to regard all virtue as matter of theory only. This, it is true, he never affirmed, as I have heard, to any one, and yet upon the least attention to his conduct I cannot help thinking it was his real opinion as it will perfectly reconcile some contradictions which might otherwise appear in his character. This gentleman and Mr. Thwackham scarce ever met without a disputation, for their tenets were indeed diametrically opposite to each other. Square held human nature to be the perfection of all virtue, and that vice was a deviation from our nature in the same manner as deformity of body is. 
Thwackham, on the contrary, maintained that the human mind, since the fall, was nothing but a sink of iniquity, till purified and redeemed by grace. In one point only they agreed, which was in all their discourses on morality, never to mention the word goodness. The favourite phrase of the former was the natural beauty of virtue, that of the latter was the divine power of grace. The former measured all actions by the unalterable rule of right and the eternal fitness of things. The latter decided all matters by authority, but in doing this he always used the scriptures and their commentators as the lawyer doth his coke upon Littleton, where the comment is of equal authority with the text. After this short introduction the reader will be pleased to remember that the parson had concluded his speech with a triumphant question, to which he had apprehended no answer, viz. Can any honour exist independent of religion? To this Square answered that it was impossible to discourse philosophically concerning words till their meaning was first established, that there were scarce any two words of a more vague and uncertain signification than the two he had mentioned, for that there were almost as many different opinions concerning honour as concerning religion. But, says he, if by honour you mean the true natural beauty of virtue, I will maintain it may exist independent of any religion whatever. Nay, added he, you yourself will allow it may exist independent of all but one. So will a Mahometan, a Jew, and all the maintainers of all the different sects in the world. Thwackham replied that this was arguing with the usual malice of all the enemies to the true church. He said he doubted not, but that all infidels and heretics in the world would, if they could, confine honour to their own absurd errors and damnable deceptions. But honour, says he, is not therefore manifold, because there are many absurd opinions about it, nor is religion manifold, because there are various sects and heresies in the world. When I mention religion, I mean the Christian religion and not only the Christian religion, but the Protestant religion, and not only the Protestant religion, but the Church of England. And when I mention honour, I mean that mode of divine grace which is not only consistent with, but dependent upon this religion, and is consistent with, and dependent upon, no other. But to say that the honour I here mean, and which was, I thought, all the honour I could be supposed to mean, will uphold, much less dictate, an untruth, is to assert an absurdity too shocking to be conceived. I purposely avoided, says Square, drawing a conclusion which I thought evident from what I have said, but if you have perceived it, I am sure you have not attempted to answer it. However, to drop the article of religion, I think it is plain from what you have said that we have different ideas of honour, or why do we not agree in the same terms of its explanation? I have asserted that true honour and true virtue are almost synonymous terms, and they are both founded on the unalterable rule of right and the eternal fitness of things, to which an untruth being absolutely repugnant and contrary, it is certain that true honour cannot support an untruth. In this, therefore, I think we are agreed, but that this honour can be said to be founded on religion, to which it is antecedent, if by religion be meant any positive law, I agree, answered Thwackham with great warmth, with a man who asserts honour to be antecedent to religion. Mr. Allworthy, did I agree? 
He was proceeding, when Mr. Allworthy interposed, telling them very coldly they had both mistaken his meaning, for that he had said nothing of true honour. It is possible, however, he would not have easily quieted the disputants, who were growing equally warm, had not another matter now fallen out which put a final end to the conversation at present. End of chapter 3